And it was just the bare bones type of information. That was all I could really take. But what was even more important was that as she held my hand, Jennifer just kept repeating the two most compassionate words that I feel any human being can say to another. And those words are, I'm here. She held my hand and she just kept saying over and over, Marcus, I'm here. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. Today is a very special day because I get to interview one of the most amazing people that I've ever met. His story is one of tragedy, triumph, and success. And I promise you, by the end of this podcast, you will truly be inspired. But just as importantly, whether you're a healthcare professional or a patient, you'll have a whole new perspective on what healthcare should be all about and what patient experience really is. Through my years of teaching communication techniques to healthcare professionals, I, of course, had heard about Marcus, his story, and the great work he was doing. So when a mutual friend told me, I think about three years ago, that she knew Marcus, I immediately jumped at the chance to meet him. We talked on the phone for a while, and I was honored when Marcus accepted my invitation to attend one of my patient experience workshops right here in Orlando. And I got to say, I was a little nervous speaking in front of someone with Marcus's reputation. But let's talk more about Marcus. As a professional speaker and author, Marcus Engel is considered an expert in communicating the patient's perspective and inspiring healthcare professionals towards excellence. Marcus speaks from personal experience like few others can. After being blinded and suffering catastrophic injuries at the hands of a drunk driver, he endured years of hospitalizations, rehab, and recovery. Blending personal narratives with evidence-based research, Marcus helps put an unforgettable name and face to the patient experience movement. Marcus holds a BS in sociology from Missouri State University and a master's in narrative medicine from Columbia University. He is currently an adjunct faculty member at the University of Notre Dame. Marcus has authored four amazing books, which are being used by scores of nursing schools, med students, and allied healthcare programs to teach strategies for excellent patient care. He's also a certified patient experience professional through the Barrel Institute and certified speaking professional through the National Speakers Association. And in 2017, the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine awarded Marcus an honorary doctorate for his contributions in the field of healthcare. Marcus lives in Orlando right near me with his wife and his seeing eye dog, Elliot. Well, welcome, Marcus. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for thanks for having me, Dr. Arsini, and thanks for all of the incredible work that you're doing in the realms of patient experience, too. Thank you. I didn't know that you received an honorary doctorate from the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I don't know if you're aware. That's my alma mater. Oh, is it really? Excellent. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. This was actually the branch that is in Georgia, but still part of the same college. Yeah. You know, as I got into the communication world and training doctors on communicating and patient experience, 
I started to really think about my time at PCOM because PCOM, even back then, when it wasn't the most popular thing, really pushed compassion in medicine. I mean, osteopathic medicine does that, as you know, but I didn't realize when I was learning it, but I think it really shaped, you know, who I am now today. And it's a very special place. So when I saw that, when I was doing my research, and I saw that, I thought, wow, what a coincidence. That, that's really great. So if you don't mind, I think, you know, I know so much about your story and so many people do. I really would like to start off with you just telling everyone out there your amazing story of tragedy and triumph. And then afterwards, I'd like to, you know, this is about difficult conversations and no one's had more than you. And your book is so insightful of how those conversations can affect you both in a positive, negative way. So if you don't mind, can you just tell your story. I think it's an amazing story and I want everyone to hear it. Sure. I'll give you the, the Cliff Notes version. And currently I'm, I'm 45 years old. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. I actually grew up in Ferguson, Missouri for the first 10 years of life. And then what I, my parents moved to the rural farmland of Missouri, where I really consider my hometown to be High Hill, Missouri. Nice little wide spot in the road with a population of less than 200 now. And I grew up a, a typical red-blooded American Midwest kid. I was in all the high school activities, played football, National Honor Society. And I decided that I wanted a big college experience in contrast to the small town that I'd grown up in. Went to Missouri State University. And six weeks into my freshman year of college, I came home for the weekend. It was my first weekend home from college. And on Saturday night, I drove into St. Louis to meet up with three friends who were also all 17 and 18 years old. We ended up going to a St. Louis Blues hockey game that night, had a great time at the game. And on our way home from that game, our car was struck broadside by another car. This is at an intersection in South St. Louis. There were four people in the car that I was riding in. I was riding shotgun, front passenger seat. And the car that struck us hit directly where I was sitting. So there was just a piece of thin Toyota metal between a car doing 50, 60 miles an hour and myself. Not only did that crash crush every bone in my face, a Lafort three fracture, but also caused permanent and total sight loss in both us. I can remember laying in the street. I can remember, you know, just the most enormous pain I think any person could experience having all the bones in my face crushed. And I remember laying in the street not being able to see, but I, I just thought it was because I had been knocked for a loop. I didn't realize that that was permanent blindness. Luckily, that crash site was only maybe two or three miles away from a level one trauma center at Barnes Jewish Hospital, Washington University's med school. And they pulled me into the emergency room that night. And that started my journey to recovery, which, as you stated, was extensive. It was long. It was detailed. It was painful. Not only the physical recovery and literally hundreds of hours of surgery, but then also the adaptations to a totally new way of being, a totally new life without sight. That's quite a story. And your books, and we'll talk about them later on, but your your books really detail your journey. And it's really amazing. You have some practical 
really advice that we'll get into later on. I also saw a while back something that happened to you. So your accident was in 1993, correct? Correct. Yeah. So there's something that happened to you in 2013 with meeting someone. And I wonder if you would share that story because that's also an amazing story. Sure. So as you can probably imagine, that night that they rolled me into the emergency department, my life was hanging by a thread. I had been criked in the street by paramedics. That's how extensive the facial damage was. And, you know, they pulled me into the emergency room. I remember just little bits and pieces about that first night. I remember pain. I remember darkness. I remember terror. But what I remember the most was the fact that there was a female who held my hand the whole night in the emergency room. And she would just, every time she could tell I was conscious, she would say, Marcus, my name is Jennifer. You were in a car accident. You're in the hospital. And it was just the bare bones type of information. That was all I could really take. But what was even more important was that as she held my hand, Jennifer just kept repeating the two most compassionate words that I feel any human being can say to another. And those words are, I'm here. She held my hand and she just kept saying over and over, Marcus, I'm here. I'm here. And I have been going around the country for the last, gosh, at least, 15, closer to 20 years, talking about the experience, that brief encounter with Jennifer. And I, gosh, I've written books. One of my books is called I'm Here, Compassionate Communication and Patient Care. But the truth of the matter is, after that night in the emergency room, I never knew anything of Jennifer again. I've never known her last name. I've never known her title or her position in the emergency room. Even my close friends and family had to ask the question, you know, was Jennifer even real? And and there's every chance I could have hallucinated her that night. So in 2013, I just graduated from Columbia's Narrative Medicine Master's program. I was continuing to speak around the country, and I got the invitation from the very hospital that saved my life, Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. And while I was there keynoting for their patient experience efforts, I I had my mind absolutely blown when I got done giving a keynote speech and the director of the patient experience department came up to the front and she said, Marcus, we've got a surprise for you. We found Jennifer. Wow. And first time in two decades, I finally got to hold her hands again. I finally got to say thank you. And I finally got to learn the other bits and pieces that I didn't remember. And I learned that at the time, Jennifer held my hand. She was just 20 years old, just a year and a half older than me. And she was a patient care tech in the emergency room. And today I'm just honored that I can call her my friend. And Jennifer has gone from being a a patient care tech at 20 years old in St. Louis till just a year or two ago, she accepted her first job as a chief nursing officer of a 500-bed hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. Fantastic. Wow. It's amazing the lines that have been laid out over the years. So that's a great starting point. I'm here. And when I talk about difficult conversations, 
and I'll talk about my book in a second, but we talk about difficult conversation. I, I was listening to an old video of Dr. Rabbi Kushner. I'm sure you might know who he is, the person who wrote When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And uh, his story is that he had a child who had a, a disease called progera, and he found out his child was going to die very young. And he talks about something called the Bushes effect, which means he said his neighbors didn't know what to say. So when he drove home, after he had the bad news, his neighbors would jump in the bushes because they didn't know what to say to him. Yeah. And his answer is just say you're sorry and then shut up is what he said. But a lot of people don't know what to say. And this young woman who was only 20 years old had had a very difficult conversation. And all she said was, I'm here. And that changed how you felt. And so the point is, conversation doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be complicated just has to be done with compassion. And I'm guessing that you felt that compassion in her voice when she said that. Certainly, certainly. And holding a hand. I know that we're in COVID times right now. <laughs> the idea of shaking hands, much less holding hands, is a little uh, <laughs> not acceptable. But boy, just holding a person's hand during such a tragic time of their life, it, it communicates as much as words can. And, and I always say that, that I'm here. Those are the two most compassionate words that any human being can say to another because it, it can't change anything, but it means that I am willing and able to sit with you in your suffering and just be present, just give you the gift and the ministry of simple human presence. Exactly. And, and exactly what you said is, just saying that I'm here and being there. And when I train physicians and nurses on how to provide a better patient experience, how to be more compassionate, I tell them, start by sitting down and show them that I'm not in a rush and you're the most important person there. I want to share something with you personally, if you don't mind. I saw you, I think two years ago at the Barrel Institute. You probably don't remember, but I mentioned to you Marcus, hey, I've been writing this book for three years. I have both of your books, but I'm really afraid to read them because I don't, I don't want to accidentally have any of those things in my mind. And so my teaching and communication to physicians and compassion came from years of research. And I interviewed probably almost 100 patients about death and dying and their experience, et cetera. And so it took me a few years to write the book. The book came out in March. It was published. It's called uh, It's All in the Delivery, Improving Healthcare, Starting with a Single Conversation. And you were at my workshop that the book is based on. And I'm giving it from a physician's point of view, not from a patient's point of view, although I got it from patients. I read your book for the first time a few weeks ago. The one I read two of them, The uh, Other End of the Stethoscope, and I'm Here. And my wife came into the room, and I got to be honest with you, I was choked up crying. And she said, what, what's going on? And a lot of what you said in that book is what I teach. And I actually got choked up because it validated what I was teaching. And I wanted to share that with you, that I felt, thank God I'm teaching it the right way because Marcus lived it. And I just want you to know how much that meant to me. 
I was really moved. I'm like, thank God I, I got it right. I've been teaching the right stuff. <laughs> thank you for sharing that. And thank you for reading my stuff too. I always try to come at this from the angle of what we're talking about with communication. It's not rocket science, but it does take being vulnerable and intentional in your communication. And Jennifer was very much that way to me that first night. And as you've read, I had many other caregivers who, I I don't want to say that they would humble themselves, but to a certain extent they would, because they would move into a place of vulnerability with me to let me express what I needed to express and then not to take it personally. I'm not a clinician, but I feel like a lot of times with clinicians, we have to come back to the idea that this individual is hurting, right? They're a patient. And sometimes hurting people hurt people. And I very much hurt many of my physicians mentally and emotionally. And, you know, the day that the ophthalmologist told me that I would never see again, I wanted to hurt them physically. And that was a difficult conversation. And maybe that's a, that's a good jumping off point for us. Yeah, I try to tell physicians when I speak about that, what the terms that I, the phrase I use is, it's not about you. If that, and you spoke about it in your book, if that patient needs to yell at you now, as you know, I'm a neonatologist, so my patients don't speak, but the parents do. And it's the same thing. And if a parent needs to yell at you and scream at you, and that's the way that they can get through this, take that on on your shoulders and think of it as a gift. There's no reason to take it personally. Your concept of one of a couple of the other things that you were just discussing is how people humble themselves or the people that you were close to. I call that being genuine. Don't be just a doctor. Be Dr. Orsini, who likes the New York Yankees and is also treats me like a person and sitting down. I want to talk about the person in your life named Barb that you speak about, because I think she epitomized to me from the book being genuine and being a person. Can you speak a little bit about her? Sure. So Barb is a nurse for life. Barb was an ICU nurse. And after my first major facial reconstruction, that was a surgery that took 25 hours, I was put into the ICU post-op and Barb was my first nurse post-op. And it was also about you know, that was, I don't know, 10 days or two weeks after the trauma. So I was kind of starting to come out of the fog of pain and morphine and loss and all that. And, and I remember my, my very first conversation with Barb, she set the tone for the rest of my hospitalization just with the way that she communicated. And you have to keep in mind at this point in time, when Barb is communicating with me, I'm traked. So I have to write everything out on a pad of paper. But Barb came up to me in my room. She shook my hand as if there was nothing wrong with me, as if every day she's taking care of patients that just went through 25-hour facial reconstruction. She introduced herself and she said, my name is Barb. I'm a nurse here in the ICU, and I get to take care of you for the next eight hours. And when she said that word, I get to take care of you. It really laid out the foundation of this person. When we get to do something, right? We're we're fortunate, we're lucky, we're privileged. And by Barb using that little three-letter word, it showed me that she actually wanted to be there, invested and intentional 
taking care of me. <laughs> Barb also asked me questions about previous surgeries that were not really relevant to why I was in the hospital now, but it showed a genuine, as you said, genuine deep humanity for wanting to know this patient as a person, not just a room number, not just a diagnosis or prognosis, not just as a procedure, but as a human being, a fully functioning human being. And one of the things that Barb did as well, she asked me, what do you want me to call you? In that first conversation, what do you want me to call you? Now, even though Barb could pick up the chart at the end of my bed and read it, she didn't. She asked that question, what do you want me to call you? Do you want to be called Marcus or Mark? So she wasn't just seeing that, oh, this is a Lafort 3 patient. She's actually getting down to the personal human connections that I have preferences and opinions and likes and dislikes, just like any other human being would. And by her asking me that question, what do you want me to call you? It really showed me that she thought of me as a human. Barb became, she was my primary nurse over the next several weeks of hospitalization. I was initially hospitalized for about six weeks and then back and forth once or twice a month for more surgery for the next year. Barb just retired last year after 42 years working on the same floor at the same hospital. That's a wow. big rarity. And anyone who knows Barb knows just what a fantastic person she is. That's a great story. And, you know, one word can change something, right? So I talk about that all the time. So she said, I get to take care of you. You notice that. And I think as physicians from the other end or nurses, we get task oriented, right? We just, we get moving we forget. We also aren't very educated on communication and we don't understand how one word makes a difference for decades. Many, many years, I was taught, because that's the way everybody else introduces themselves as, hi, I'm Dr. Orsini. I'm one of the pediatricians. And when I did my interviews with dozens of family members, more and more of them said to me, when you say you're one of, it kind of means like you're not really taking any responsibility for me. And I'd love to hear your comment on that. When you say I'm the pediatrician who's in charge of your child today, all of a sudden they're relaxed. I have a face of someone and a voice of someone who's taken responsibility. And interestingly enough, we did a little poll and I asked parents, what makes you more comfortable? I'm one of the pediatricians or I am the intern. Now, most of the parents knew that interns are right out of med school. They don't know anything, right? They actually felt more comfortable with the intern just by changing that word. And I said, you know that they don't know anything, right? <laughs> and and they said, yes, but that's my intern. Yeah, yeah. Taking ownership, right? They, they feel a bit of ownership over this situation, I would say, especially in pediatrics. You know, you have to keep in mind, I was a bit of a different patient because I was just five months past my 18th birthday. So I was on an adult floor while my friend who was driving in the car went to a peds floor, neuropeds. And I've always found that kind of I was walking that line between adulthood and childhood, but my parents certainly needed that comfort to know that this was Dr. Jones. He is Marcus's plastic surgeon. He's not a team member. He is the guy. He is the guy. And I feel like when parents are in such a difficult time of having a child 
hospitalized, much less hospitalized in the ICU, you have no control, right? You realize how little control that you have and how much you have to trust in the physicians and the surgeons and then in the care team and just in the process itself. But whenever you can build that trust in where parents feel a little bit of control, I think that's giving them a great gift when everything seems so out of their ability to control anything. Exactly. And that is part of the patient experience, knowing that this person, nowadays we're in medicine is so subspecialized. You know, you have how many doctors, my goodness, I can't even imagine how many doctors you had, but you need kind of a captain of the ship, right? You need somebody to know that's my my doctor. And sometimes people don't know who their main doctor is. And it's important for them to know that. Yeah. As physicians, and you know, when I say that to physicians, they go, wow, that sounds great. I'm going to use the from now on. But it comes back from 20 years ago. We as physicians were taught to be, act like a team. And that's important too, but you can do both, right? You can say, I'm in charge of your care and act as a team. But back to your book, when you give some practical advice, one of the advice you give, you talk about you're in the best place and that's teamwork. I'd like you to talk about that. Sure. So that's a Barb story too, that when she asked me, you know, Marcus, this is at our first introduction, you know, I'm still coming out of the recovery room. I'm still very, very doped up. And she asked me about if I had had any previous surgery before this terrible car accident. And I wrote out on my pad of paper, yes, twice I've had hernia surgeries. And she said, oh, okay, well, made conversation, asked where those surgeries were done, what was the hospital? And I told her, and she said, well, you know, that hospital is a great hospital. She said, but now, Marcus, you need to know that you are in the best hospital. And she went down the list of just a few different accolades and awards and recognition that the hospital had received. And what does that say to the patient? It it tells the patient that they're in good hands, that they're in a quality, competent facility that has been recognized for its quality and competency. I think it's not only important to build that amount of trust that the caregivers that are going to be laying hands on the patient are quality, but also that the entire facility is trustworthy and has been recognized for how well they do things. I think that's a really good way that clinicians can help patients and families feel more secure in the patient's care. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important. I go out of my way to tell the parents two things. One is I'm going to treat your child as if she were my own. Mm. And you see their shoulders kind of drop a little bit with relief. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, if this were my baby, this is where I'd want him to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important because no one wants to be in a hospital that's not the best, right? So you don't want to hear that. I, I want to talk about one more thing from your book and then get some advice from you because it struck me. And I love this title of this chapter, Screw Your Policy. (laughs) <laughs> because I talk about that all the time. And just a little bit about that. I really want to hear what you have to say about that. So screw your policy, boy, that came from a night that, okay. So my university where I had started off at college was three hours away from St. Louis where I was in the hospital. And I had uh, several of my best friends from high school had also gone to another state university that was two or three hours away. 
from my hospital room. And as you know, college kids don't always keep normal businessman's hours. So my friends showed up at nine o'clock at night. And this, you know, this is back in the early 90s when there was a lot more restriction on visiting hours and how many people can be in the room, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I remember having one of my clinicians or caregivers said that my friends, they just arrived. They didn't get there till nine o'clock at night. Visiting hours stop at 10. And they wanted to shoo my friends out of the room. They wanted them to leave. And gosh, especially you think about from a teenager's perspective, their friendships are, you know, the most important thing to them. Friendships and relationships with peers. And I, I was told, well, it's a hospital policy that visiting hours end at 9 p.m. And I remember saying, screw that policy. I want my friends to stay. And where was the teaching point in this is that that clinician actually let my friends stay after hours, provided that we were quiet and we kept the door closed and didn't interrupt any or, you know, bother any other patients. It made it feel very personal to me that the clinician could take into account, this is not a normal situation. They, they looked at it as an individualized, personal situation, and then they acted accordingly. So that there isn't a, they weren't necessarily following the rules, but they were helping bend the rules for the benefit of the patient, which I think when we're benefiting our patients and families, that's ultimately what we're there to do, right? That's ultimately what clinicians and, and care teams are there to do. Yeah, I, I agree. And I always say that words, policy and rules should really be avoided as much as possible. We can, and when you do bend the policy or bend the rules it goes a long way. I'll share a quick story with you. When I moved to Orlando, my in-laws were both in their upper 80s. They came to visit me. And through no fault of my own, they both ended up being hospitalized within the first week. My mother-in-law had congestive heart failure. My father-in-law fell and hurt his knee. They were both in the hospital at my hospital at the same time. So my brother-in-laws were calling me say, what did you do to my parents? I'm like, I swear, I didn't do anything. But so my mother-in-law's on the 10th floor. And she's in the cardiac unit. My father-in-law is downstairs and he's in orthopedics. And the, one of the nurses came in. It was, she was a charge nurse doing it rounds. And she noticed that my father-in-law was very sad, even though he's kind of always generally a happy person. And she asked him and he said, well, to be honest with you, today's my, I don't know, 50th anniversary. And it's the first anniversary. I'm not going to spend with my wife. And she spoke to him a little bit, didn't really say much. And then about 10 minutes later, an orderly came in. And with a wheelchair. And he said, you know, cardiac unit is not supposed to have any visitors, but I have been instructed to take you down to the gift shop. And he grabbed his wallet. He bought a rose and he brought her up for 15 minutes to be with his wife. Well, it does not matter from that point on. It did not matter if anything went wrong with the hospitalization. See, they could have forgot to feed him for days. No matter what happened. My hospital was the greatest hospital in the world to him because somebody took a moment just to do something extra. And so breaking that policy, I think just having your friends visit probably meant the world to you. Yeah, absolutely. Again, anytime it's a, a patient's needs can be looked at individualistically and personally, you're going to make such a great impression with patients and families. Yeah, that's a, just great advice. So in, in closing, being such a 
patient experience person, and I want this to, you're such an expert on it. I'd like you to go and speak to both doc, both clinicians and to patients. And what, maybe I'm putting you on the spot, what's just a few sentences of advice that you can give to physicians, nurses first about how they can make being in the hospital as least horrible as possible? I always say, and this is something that I teach my students at Notre Dame too, my pre-meds, that human presence, simple human presence is the cornerstone of caregiving. And you can convey that presence with those words, I'm here, but you can also convey that this is the, it's not just the cornerstone of caregiving. Presence is the, it's the foundation of our humanity. So whenever you're using those words, I'm here with a patient, you're not just speaking compassionately, you're speaking to them human being to human being. I just always love for clinicians to remember that, hey, you're in the hospital, you're in the assisted living facility, you're in the rehab center. It may be an average day on the job for you. It's just a Tuesday, but it could very well be the worst day of that patient's life. And when we keep that in mind, that we have the opportunity to provide compassionate, personalized care on the worst day of someone's life, I hope that keeps us more aligned with our personal mission, visions, and values to to be the best, most quality, compassionate caregivers that we can be. Patients, boy, what is my advice for patients? Do what the doctors say. (laughs) Do what the doctors say. I always want patients to, to remember that they are the focus. They are the focus, but it does have to be mutual effort of clinicians and the patient working towards the same goal. So sometimes I think patients get the idea of, well, I'll lay here and you guys will fix me. You clinicians will fix me. But there has to be some uh, forward motion in the patient's, I don't want to say their treatment of him or herself, but in their care process too, where they're putting one foot in front of the other to get better. That's great advice. So, well, I could talk to you all day long, but you're a busy man. And I just want to thank you again for coming on this podcast, taking the time out of your busy schedule. Uh, It was really, truly an honor. If you want to book Marcus to speak or get in touch with him in any way, you could reach him at MarcusEngel.com. And that's E-N-G-E-L, just to be clear. And his books are still available. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button, leave a review. Reviews are really important to get the word out. And if you'd like more information about the Orsini Way and communication training, or you'd like to email me personally, visit me at theorsiniway.com. If there's a topic that you're interested or you want to nominate someone for this podcast, please let me know. And finally, I want to, uh, if you want to learn more about communication, remember my book just came out in March. Marcus, I'm going to, if you send me your address, I'll be happy to send you one. The book is called It's All in the Delivery, Improving Healthcare, Starting with the Single Conversation. And you can get that on Amazon, Kindle, and Apple Books. But thank you, Marcus. And thank you for all you do and for being such an inspiration to me and everybody else. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and and continued success on bringing this notion of compassionate communication to all clinicians. Thank you. And I hope to work with you soon. Sounds great. Take care, Marcus. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, 
visit us at the Orsiniway.com.